This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week is card number 174, Phil Garner. Phil Garner, third baseman for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Okay, Phil Garner, looking forward to this one. But before we get to Phil, we do have some feedback and apology about last week's episode with Bill Doran. As we mentioned during the episode, Bill Doran was in RBI Baseball. But we forgot. We forgot all about the Astros being in RBI baseball. And so we neglected to have the RBI segment. But this week, since Phil Garner is in the game as well, we're going to cover both of the players and the Astros from RBI baseball with Brian later in the show. So an apology to those of you who were expecting to get an RBI corner last week. We've got it this week, and you'll find out why it was so easy for us to forget about the Astros being in the game. One other note we have about Bill Doran, we got a comment from Owen on our Facebook page, which you can find at facebook.com slash 1988tops podcast. Owen is a photographer and actually took the picture of Bill Doran that's on the card. And Owen notes that he is also from Mount Healthy, Ohio, and that when they interacted together, Bill would call him homie. Owen also included a second shot from the same photo set of Bill Doran and really just shows more of that action shot. A really good picture. We uh, congratulated him for for taking that shot. If you'll recall, the Bill Doran picture was one of our favorites. He's commented on a couple posts just saying, I took that picture. So thank you, (laughs) Owen. Great work. We have the best listeners, so thank you all for sharing your talents and your stories if you have any interactions with the players that we cover. And now on to Phil Garner. And David, this is a recommendation from a listener. Listener Charlie from Tennessee is collecting the rookie card of every Tennessee volunteer to make it to Major League Baseball. When we released our Mike Smithson episode, he sent a note and said he had just picked up a Mike Smithson rookie when he heard our episode about Big Mike, and he was patiently waiting for us to talk about Phil Garner. So thank you very much, Charlie, for the suggestion, and that is a very cool project. I might do the same with UIC graduates. I just really need to get a Curtis Granderson rookie, as he is the only UIC flame to make it to the big leagues. But Phil Garner was a Tennessee volunteer, had a fantastic mustache, although not in evidence on this card, a very long playing career and a great nickname, part of some really fun stories and we're looking forward to talking about phil today his saber bio is by norm king that bio is also available in the book mustaches and mayhem which is a fantastic name for a book also subtitle of the 1988 tops podcast (laughs) and that book is about the oakland athletics from 1972 to 1974 that is available for free download if you are a saber member so i was able to download that for free thank you norm king for your work on that phil garner biography 
Excellent. And a plug here. If you're enjoying this show and you're not yet a member of Sabre, we highly encourage it. There's no better way to read the stories of all the players that you love and a whole bunch of them that you've never heard of. Now to the front of the card of 174, and we get Phil Garner on the Dodgers. is not the first team I think of, of Phil Garner being a part of. So it's a little strange seeing him in this Dodgers uniform. But I got to say, this is... This is an interesting and good-looking card. Phil looks really good. He's got the flip-up shades. He looks like he's in the infield, and it's kind of between batters. He's kind of hanging out. He's got his fist in his mitt. You know, he's got his forearms that are kind of flexed. So he's, uh, I don't know, he just looks good. Just looks good in this shot. What would look better is if Phil had his trademark mustache. I think of Phil Garner, and maybe I think of him even as a manager, as having a big push broom mustache. So then I look back to try to figure out what happened to this mustache. In 1985, on his tops card, there's a giant mustache. 86, 87, 88, it's gone. Is it a coincidence that those were his final three seasons? Is this a Samson mustache situation? A Samson and Delilah situation, it's, it's definitely possible. Or maybe he was just 38 years old. And on the downslide of his career. But the picture that is posted on Baseball Reference, that's how I think of Phil Garner. With a Yosemite Sam style reddish brown mustache in an Astros hat. Not just a good mustache, but really one of the best. And so it's it's a little bit unfortunate. But this is a good looking card, regardless of that missing mustache. A cool picture, almost a... Like, this could be a guy on the current Dodgers. And part of that is the the nature of that Dodgers uniform hasn't really changed. He just looks like a like a ball player. Flip down shades, yeah. like you said. He looks pretty good without the mustache. The classic white Dodgers uniform with the blue script on the front, the flipped up shades. He, he could be Steve Sachs' older brother. This could be a 2021 shot absolutely so yeah a, a great looking card but the picture of the mustache it's the thing that's so impressive about phil garner's mustaches through the years is the height is the distance from his lip to the top of his mustache is unparalleled in mustaches that i've ever seen it doesn't look possible it doesn't look possible for for a mustache to grow that big And it looks almost like if he shaved it, that he would have so much upper lip that he would look (laughs) like a cartoon character. And that's why it's surprising to see in this Dodgers picture that he looks like a normal human being. Yeah, you would expect, uh, seeing a clean shave in Phil Garner, you would expect zooming in to see kind of five o'clock shadow of mustache that goes for like, like six inches tall or something. It's... You're like, wait a minute, how is your lip only that big? It, it should be much larger. So, yeah, it's maybe it's an optical illusion of some kind. I don't know, but uh, all the same, an, an impressive card, an impressive mustache. Now let's go to the back of 174. And we have Phil Garner, third baseman, 5'10", weight 177, right-handed batter and thrower, drafted by the A's in the first round of the January 1971 draft. Born April 30th, 1949 in Jefferson City, Tennessee, and a home in Kingwood, Texas. And David, this is a card with a lot of stats on it. No fun facts, so we're going to have to choose our own adventure on the fun facts. So many stats, not a lot of black ink. 
He led the league in games played once. But, you know, nothing on here that really jumps out except a very long career. So we'll get into what is notable about Phil's career a little bit later. But in his background, Jefferson City, Tennessee is where he was born. But he grew up in nearby Rutledge, Tennessee, and that's in East Tennessee. And Phil said there was a mountain in his backyard. He grew up hunting and fishing. His father was a Baptist minister. And Rutledge was a small town. When I was looking at the demographic data, there was even just a blank space before 1960. So I'm not even sure how many people live there. Maybe around 500. When he was in his teens, probably around 700. So pretty small town. Famous Rutledge folks include Arvis Davis, a University of Tennessee Hall of Fame basketball player nicknamed the Rutledge Rifle, and Theo Tate, who would be treasurer under Calvin Coolidge, and the ninth governor of Arizona, Robert Taylor Jones. Phil was a really good athlete growing up, but the school in Rutledge didn't have a lot of athletic opportunities for him. He wanted to play football, and the school didn't have a team. His father knew that the only way that the family could afford to put Phil in college was with an athletic scholarship. And he knew that his son was good enough to get an athletic scholarship. So the family just moves 30 miles to Knoxville when Phil is a junior in high school, and he attends Bearden High School. Famous Bearden alums include Weezer guitarist Brian Bell and record producer Nick Raskalinitz, who has worked on Deftones, Mastodon, Coheed and Cambria, and Foo Fighters records. Bearden was a much bigger school than they had in Rutledge, and this would allow Phil to play football, get more exposure as a baseball player to scouts and to, to colleges. He steps right in and starts at QB for Bearden as a junior and senior, but it was on the baseball diamond that he earned a scholarship to the University of Tennessee. At the University of Tennessee, Phil was an outstanding player. When we bring up the Tennessee Volunteers, it it does make me think of the song Rocky Top. Well, which, of course it does. Of course it does. <laughs> which it's is a, fantastic. Yeah. Just a fantastic fight song. It's, and it, yeah. is there a better fight song than Rocky Top, Matt? I think maybe not. It's a difficult question, and I would say a very charged question in the United States to try to say what's the best fight song because inevitably it's going to get into the rivalries of schools against each other. But purely as a neutral, when it comes to college athletics, which I really am, most of my hatreds and allegiances have faded away through time. And I also want to put out there that with all of these songs, the marching band version is what I'm going to tend toward, is what is getting played after the team scores the touchdown and they kick the extra point and the band starts going crazy. So Rocky Top, Hail to the Victors by Michigan, USC and Notre Dame are to me what ends up being the the best fight songs. But Rocky Top wins on a landslide for two sentimental reasons. One is just that the lyrics are so fun. And second is that my wife actually learned the song as a child in texas and i'm not sure why but she would just always sing it she's like oh yeah rocky top and didn't know that it was a college fight song she's not she played in marching band but didn't know that that was the official song of the university of tennessee but still knew the song and to this day could say the lyrics and they're really pretty ridiculous i agree with you on all of that as a also a, a ncaa football neutral but, you know, growing up a Notre Dame fan, I always enjoyed the Notre Dame fight song. This Rocky Top is not the official 
fight song of the University of Tennessee, but it is sung after the the point after attempt at football games. I did always enjoy when the NCAA football games for the various gaming platforms, when they started putting in the fight song after the touchdown, I appreciated picking a team that had a good fight song because, you you know, you want to hear the good one. Rocky Top was originally performed by the Osborne Brothers in 1967, and we'll include a clip of that original bluegrass version here with some of those outrageous lyrics. Once I had a girl on Rocky Top, half bear the other half cat. Wild as a mink, but sweet as soda pop, I still dream about that. Rocky Top, you'll always be home sweet home to me. The song has a few different, somewhat coded references to illegal or maybe slightly immoral behavior, but I think all in good fun, whether it is illegal production of alcohol or potential bestiality. Look, when you're drinking corn from a jar, things are going to happen. This does bring me back to when my wife was like, yeah, I I met a girl on Rocky Top. Uh, half bear, other half cat. And I was like, oh, whoa, what now? <laughs> it's an Animorphs, I think. Yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. So at Tennessee, Phil was outstanding. He wasn't really known as a power hitter in the major leagues, but in college, he was the home run leader in 1969 with 12 home runs in 33 games. He was all SEC in 1969 and 1970, also was an honorable mention All-American selection in 1970, and he got the attention of some scouts, and he was all ready to be picked in the draft. He looks in the paper that had the local guys listed, and he wasn't on the list. It turns out that because his parents had moved to Texas, he wasn't listed as a Tennessee ball player, and so he's distraught and doesn't learn about this until later that he was actually drafted in the eighth round by the Expos, but he thought that he was just passed over because he wasn't listed in the local paper. And it says that he's picked in the eighth round, but that's different than what you read up above, Matt. Yeah, I said he was picked in the first round of a special January draft. That's because the Expos didn't really show a lot of interest in Phil. The scout who was assigned to him didn't even offer him a contract. He just said, here's a plane ticket to our minor league club. So Phil didn't sign. Instead, he goes to play for a semi-pro team. The Expos come out to watch him and still don't really offer him the money that he's looking for. So he decides to wait. And in January, the A's drafted him in the secondary draft with the third overall selection. They actually showed interest and signed him and sent him to play A ball in Burlington. In Burlington, he adapted quickly to life as a professional. He hit 278 with 11 home runs and 70 RBIs that first season. At this point, he's playing third base. He had played second base in college and made the shift when he started in A-ball. That took a while for him to adjust to. He had 29 errors his first year. The A's had Sal Bando in all-star at third base, so it might be a long road for Phil to get to the big leagues. He works his way up the chain, earns a spot at AA in 72, still hitting pretty well, and earns a call up to AAA Iowa, where he struggled to get to the level offensively, hitting 243 over 70 games. But on defense in 1972, he's more comfortable improving his defensive capabilities, lowering his number of errors. 
And because his offense wasn't that great at AAA, the A's decided to give him another year. That offseason, they had moved their AAA team to Tucson, and Phil did much better. Maybe his mustache needed the dry Arizona air, or maybe (laughs) he just needed some time to catch up with AAA pitching, but he was really good. He hit 289 with 14 home runs and earned a call-up to the bigs in September of 1973. Which was pretty good timing for him because... He played for the soon-to-be world champion A's for nine games. <laughs> it went 0-5. Uh, we don't know if that earned him a World Series ring, but at least he was in the vicinity of the world championship team. Those nine games and going 0-5 didn't earn him a spot on the team in 1974, so he starts out in Tucson and does very well, hitting 330 in 96 games. But he's not getting his chance yet. So it must have been a little frustrating for Phil. He's hitting 330 in AAA, but when he gets called up to the A's, he's mostly used as a defensive replacement. In 30 games, he only got 28 at-bats and hit 179. So these first couple lines on his card look pretty meager. Ahead of the 1975 season, it didn't really look like much would change. Sal Bando's still there. But then in March, the A's cut their longtime second baseman, Dick Green, and they gave Phil a call. I think he was in Venezuela with the Winter League and said, can you play second base? Phil hadn't done it since college, but with third base blocked, it was an opportunity. He took the opportunity, and in 1975, we see the only black ink on his card. Games played, 160, tied for the AL lead, but he also led the AL in errors with 26. And even though he's leading the league in errors and has a lot of errors, he also had good range And so he's often near the AL lead in putouts and assists. So the errors weren't a huge problem because he's getting so many opportunities. The A's ended up winning the division that year, but were swept by Boston. But overall, Phil was impressing his teammates. Sal Bando called him a good, gutty ball player. And he also fit in, David, because this 75 A's team had one of the best facial hair lineups in baseball history. In mustaches above replacement, Raleigh Fingers is always near the top of the list. You got your <laughs> Goose Gossages and Raleigh Fingers are really that like that Babe Ruth level. But they also had Gene Tennis. Reggie Jackson had a mustache and, and beard at this point. A lot of good mustaches on this team. This was also near the end of that great A's team of the early 70s. And they had started to dismantle. So in 1976, you were moving into a team without Reggie Jackson. Chuck Tanner comes in to manage the team. They still finish in second place, and Tanner is making them more of a running team. They set an American League record with 341 stolen bases. Phil improved offensively. He's hitting 261, and he stole 35 bases, which was a career high for him. He earns a spot on the All-Star team for the first time, which also earns him a spot in one of the weirdest trades we've talked about. The manager, Chuck Tanner, was in a weird situation in Oakland. Prior to 1976, he had been fired by the White Sox, but he still had three years on his contract. Oakland's owner, Charlie Finley, knew that Tanner still was getting paid by the White Sox. And so there's a strange quote. He said, I won't say how much I'm going to pay him, but if I give him $10,000 a year, Bill Veck will have to pay him the other 50000 So Charlie Finley thinks that he can get three years of a cut-rate manager— And this dispute leads to the American League president stepping in and saying that the Sox only owed Tanner 
1976 salary, but they didn't have to pay him for the, the next couple years. So Oakland thinks they've got this basically free manager. Turns out they, got, they actually have to pay him. At the same time, the Pirates manager, Danny Murtaugh, retires, and the Pirates wanted to hire Chuck Tanner. So Finley is cheap, but he's not going to let Tanner go for free. He still has him under team control, and so he traded him. Which <laughs> one would imagine you could trade a manager for another manager, but Finley traded Chuck Tanner for Manny Sanguian and $100,000. He ends up getting a, a really good catcher and gets rid of a manager who he didn't want to pay anyways in the middle of a fire sale. So Chuck Tanner goes to Pittsburgh. The A's continue their fire sale. Chuck Tanner decides he wants to bring in one of his guys, Phil Garner. And so Tanner, now on the Pirates, trades for Phil Garner and two other guys. He trades six players, including a young Tony Armas, Rick Langford, and Mitchell Page. The A's get a decent return on this, but Garner really got the better end of the deal. Instead of playing for a nearly 100-loss A's team, he gets to go join the Pirates at that point in the ascendancy in the National League. So Garner is now with the Pirates, and he, along with this trade, he picks up a great nickname, Scrap Iron. Where does this come from? According to Phil, there's a couple versions of the story. Announcer Milo Hamilton was interviewing Willie Stargell and asked him about Phil, and Stargell said, well, he's a little feller, and he's tough, and he'll compete. He's like an old piece of scrap metal. You know, you can bend him and beat on him, and you can't break him. And Milo responded, well, Scrap Iron, then. That's who he'll be. Dave Parker, on the other hand, said, Phil got the nickname because every time the ball hit his glove, the ball sounded like it was hitting the lid of a garbage can. <laughs> Parker and, and Garner would frequently tease each other in the locker room and, and had a, a friendly rivalry going that was often ribald and, and, and not safe for work, let's say. Garner said, version one is a true story. Of course you're going to take Pops's nice story versus cobras more venomous according to garner teammates would come early to the clubhouse to watch him and parker spar back and forth jerry royce said dave was an equal opportunity offender nothing was sacred nor was it personal but it was daily comedy and i was looking through dave parker's autobiography cobra for garner references and the first one i found contained a word that i will not repeat but garner got in his jabs as well it was all in good fun and he said if it hadn't been, Parker would have destroyed him. You know, there's a, a picture of the two of them next to each other, and Dave Parker is easily half a foot taller than Phil Garner. <laughs> Phil Garner generously listed at 5'10 here. We like to talk about the Pirates here, not just because of your family history in Pittsburgh, but because these 70s Pirates teams are just fun. And that 77 team won 96 games, and Garner played a key role now at third base with a little time at short and second base. Yeah, and showing more power, too. A career high, 17 home runs, plus stole 32 bases. So he's really coming into his own. 1978, his numbers are down a little bit, but he did make a little history. He had grand slams on consecutive days, which, that's man, would that be fun. First against the Cardinals on September 14th, and then against the Expos the next night. This is the first time this has happened in the National League since 1901. 
And that was two of his 10 home runs that year. So pretty good return for that minimal number of home runs. We talked about the 1979 World Series champion Pirates in the Kent DeColvey episode and how important this team was to my family. And this has been, it's one of our favorites, the We Are Family Pirates with Willie Stargell, Dave Parker, Burt Blylevin, Antique. And we have a really fun clip here, David. No context, Willie Stargell hitting Phil Garner in the face with a pie. Yeah, there's there's not even any audio. Just Phil Garner in the middle of an interview getting hit with a pie. Just nothing to add there. That season, there's a really good picture uh, at the Baseball Hall of Fame that we'll have in the show notes of Phil in the dugout at spring training. And he said, I got sick watching us play last year. I'm not pointing fingers because I was worse than anyone else. And you look at this picture of scrap iron in a 1970s dugout with a mop of hair, giant mustache. And this is just a beat up spring training dugout. It's this is a quintessential Phil Garner picture. Yeah, it really is. And so he said prior to that season and in this article, he said the team needed to get their attitude in shape and stay strong. And he went on in 1979 to be one of the most valuable players on that Pirates team, hitting 293, 11 home runs, 17 steals, played solid defense, splitting time between second and third. And he was actually worth the second most wins above replacement on that team, second only to Dave Parker, ahead of the MVP, Willie Stargell, and any pitcher on that team. He's worth 4.1 war. Pretty good for Phil Garner. Not only did he have a great regular season, he was really clutch in the postseason too. Went 5 for 12 in the NLCS with a home run in a sweep of the Reds, an OPS of 1.295. And then in the World Series against the Orioles, he hit 500 and not just like 2 for 4 or 500. He went 12 for 24 in the World Series. Add in three walks. He was just constantly on base. Drove in five runs, scored four runs. The Pirates end up winning in, in seven games. And Phil finally gets the ring that he had missed out on in Oakland. And once again, we're going to encourage folks to watch full games on YouTube from this World Series. Because if the MLB lockout lasts into spring, we may just need to watch the whole series over and over again instead of modern baseball. Because... We have nothing else to do. It's great. And, you know, of course, those games are two hours long, and I didn't have time to watch all of them this week, but I want to just pinpoint some of the the Phil Garner at-bats in those. I think it'd be a fun project, like have a simultaneous live tweet viewing of one of the games from that series. I think it would be a fun, a fun exercise. So after the glory of the 79 series, Phil ends up earning another All-Star appearance in 1980, despite his batting average dropping at 259, but he's still 32 bases and he's still primarily playing at second base. In the All-Star game, he got a hit, a stolen base, and scored a run. Then we get into 1981, the strike year. Phil was one of the Pirates' player representatives. I saw an interview and he said this and maybe didn't imply that that created a rift with ownership or led to his trade, but he had kind of a down year in 81. He's also getting up there in age. He's 32 by this point. So Phil had shoulder surgery in April, which hindered his throwing ability. He somehow still made the all-star team, despite not really having any power or speed. He's hitting 284 when the strike occurs. 
The All-Star game took place in August right before play resumed, and this is the last of his three All-Star appearances. He's getting up there in age a little bit. He's about to be out of contract. The Astros are looking for a second baseman. And so the Pirates traded old scrap iron to Houston for Johnny Ray and two players to be named later. Yeah, this is a trade that ends up pretty decent for both teams. Johnny Ray was a solid prospect at second base who had a a few good years for the Pirates. And Phil Garner, while he's 32, he still had a few solid years left in him uh, that he ends up spending at the Astros. And the Astros make the playoffs in 1981. Phil didn't replicate his heroics that he had from the 79 series in NLCS. He only went two for 18 in the divisional series against the Dodgers. He comes back in 82, has a solid season, 274, 13 home runs, and a career-high 83 RBIs. Of course, scrap iron, scrappy in the field, but also on the base paths. He stole 24 bases, also was in the top 10 in triples with eight. And he was on that triples leaderboard a few times in his career. I love triples. I really do. (laughs) Yeah, and I think it's impressive with Garner here. Even when he's dropping in stolen base numbers, he's still hitting 10 triples. So he's just, he's scrappy. He's putting a ball in a corner and just, he's going to go for it. And heads up base running. You love to see it. 1983, an injury to Art Howe pushes Garner over to third. And this also lets last week's player Bill Doran come in and start at second base. And Garner slips right back in. No problem. He... Had remembered all his old tricks from third base and plays solid defense. His average drops a little bit, but he still had double-digit homers and steals. We get into 1984 now. Garner is 35 years old, and the Astros want to trade him, but they don't really get any offers. And they publicly made that statement that nobody's knocking down the door to come get Phil Garner, which made it interesting the next year when they re-signed him. <laughs> Bob Herzl from the, the Pittsburgh Press in the 1984 season said scrap iron they called him when he was here in pittsburgh in houston though it's more like scrap heap and oh no he's platooning with denny walling at third base and only played 128 games he had his lowest non-strike year at bat total since those partial seasons with the a's he hit a respectable 278 but he's at the end of his contract seems like houston wants to get rid of him and then they exercise a team option on him to keep keep him around in 85 he stays at third base. Walling becomes the first baseman. Garner is the everyday third baseman. He's maybe lost a little step. He's not stealing as many bases, but again, hits 10 triples, 23 doubles, a 268 average. And so they're still keeping him around. 1986, his role is reduced. He only starts 80 games and does a little pinch hitting too, but he's still contributing. He ends up hitting his 100th career home run on a grand slam his first Grand Slam since the two that he hit in 1978. He's a solid contributor to the team that ends up winning the division in the West. It's unclear if Phil Garner ever visited Cooters in Houston, (laughs) site of the famous Tim Tuffle brawl. The Astros played the Mets famously in that NLCS in 1986, ultimately losing in six games, but not without some controversy. The Mets believed that Mike Scott was throwing scuffed balls in his game four three hitter, which was a game that the Astros won three to one. And in the bad guys won the story of the 1986 Mets, Bobby Ojeda said that he had an idea of who was scuffing the ball. He said, 
The SOB who was doing it was Phil Garner at third. He's a rat. He had this thing in his glove when the ball was thrown around. He'd squeeze it and throw it to Scott. I'll go to my grave believing that. Garner, of course, said this is completely untrue. Wow. Well, in Garner's defense, Scott also pitched a five-hit shutout in game one when Garner didn't play in that game. So either there were two rats or there's a different alternative logical explanation for the facts and evidence. We'll have to leave it for others to decide on, on how that should be interpreted. Regardless, Garner ends up playing in three games of the NLCS and goes two for nine with a double and two RBIs. The Mets end up winning the series, as we said, so the Astros don't make it to the World Series, but they do earn a place in RBI baseball. And that takes us to the RBI Baseball Corner with Brian. And we are back in the RBI Baseball Corner with Brian. Brian, welcome back to the show. And this week, a little something different. Due to our snafu last week, we neglected to talk about Bill Doran. So we've got two Houston Astros for you to cover for us this week. Always great to be back. And I guess it's nice to talk about the Houston Astros and RBI baseball. Just by way of background, there's 10 teams in RBI baseball, as we've discussed before. And there's certain things that people debate among the teams. For instance, who is the best team? Detroit, Boston, California, the all-star teams are always up there. Who's the fourth best regular team after Detroit and Boston, California? Is it fair to use the all-star teams? But there's also things that people don't debate about RBI baseball. So who is the second worst team is pretty universally understood to be St. Louis. And then who is the worst team? I think everyone can actually agree is, in fact, the Houston Astros in RBI (laughs) baseball. Uh, In terms of the Astros teams, let's start with the positives. They have a lot of speed. They have a lot of lefty batters. Pretty good pitching with unusual endurance. The negatives are, I guess, batted balls. Actually trying to hit a baseball is a problem (laughs) with Houston. And then also it's all righty pitching. So you just have to rely on run manufacturing. And I guess both both Billy Doran and, and Phil Garner are examples of this. As there's really no power on the team. Glenn Davis is your only power hitter. And he's kind of a very poor man's Jack Clark. And if you have a good lefty starter, because so much of the Astros lineup is left-handed, you can shut them down really easily. But just to pivot back quickly to the positives, they have wonderful uniforms in the game. They're yellow with this blue trim, very colorful. So they really show up on the bases because of this yellow. The problem is that they never actually show up on the bases. (laughs) Yes, that's a real downside to the team. What about Phil Garner in particular and also Bill Doran? So it's kind of fun to talk about the team together because you can actually sub one out in for the other. Bill Doran is a starter in the game. He's their number six hitter. He's fine, I guess. He's kind of just a very average RBI baseball player, kind of like the replacement player type. A little bit of power, not much. A little bit of speed, not that much. He's one of six lefties in the lineup, though. So if you do want to go against, say, a righty starter and have a left-handed heavy lineup, maybe you keep him in the game. On other teams, he'd probably be a player that you'd sub out, but it's not quite as clear with Houston because the lineup overall is so weak. So there's a number of other players you might want to sub out, too. If you were to sub him out, one of the guys you might think about bringing in is actually Phil Garner. He's one of the four bench players in RBI baseball. 
But he's either their best or second best bench player and well worth subbing into what's a pretty weak lineup. He's a righty, and that actually has a little more utility with Houston because you're already starting six lefties in the lineup as it is, whereas in other teams you might be looking for left-handed bats. He has the second best power on the team as well, so maybe he's got some home run punch, except just for a bit of context, his second best power on the Astros in the game would be 11th best for either the Tigers or the Angels, so it's just a pretty weak team overall. That's shockingly bad. So what do you do? Do you sub Garner in for Doran? Well, this is a situation where there's actually no right choice. You know, sometimes we talk about, well, there's no wrong choice here with like a quarterback controversy between two good players. But here, whatever you do, you're going to have a weak lineup. So it's really up to you. You definitely want to get Denny Walling out of the number three slot in the Houston lineup. Probably also Alan Ashby out of the number eight slot. And then maybe you want to get Bill Doran out of the number six slot. So you could bring Gardner in at any of those slots. What you don't want to do is save Phil Garner on your bench for a big moment because ultimately getting that deep into the game isn't something you can reliably count on when you're playing with the Houston Astros. Sounds like you're mostly just trying to survive and not get 10 run. That's exactly right. Or it's the time when you're playing with a handicap because you're playing against a relative or a friend who isn't that familiar with the game. Sounds good. A good team maybe to use to try to beat up on your little cousin, which is what I would always try to do. Thanks a lot, Brian. Thank you. Great to be here, guys. And we are back. Unfortunately, after the heights of RBI baseball, (laughs) Phil's career kind of wound down. In 1987, he was a backup, then was traded in June to the Dodgers, where he had pretty underwhelming numbers. At this point, he's 38 years old. He signs with the Giants in 1988, plays in April, then has back surgery. And rather than retire at age 39, he comes back and plays a little bit in September Ends up with 15 games played that season as a pinch hitter and defensive replacement. But that's the end as we close the book on Phil Garner's career. 16 seasons in the majors, a 260 career average, almost 1,600 hits, 109 home runs, and 225 steals, caught stealing 105 times, and a career OPS plus of 99. So basically, an average hitter, but three all-star appearances and that World Series ring in 1979. How about in retirement? He wasn't out of baseball very long. He retired in 1988, and then in 1989, the Astros bring him on as a first base coach. He stays in that role for a couple seasons and then is hired to manage the Brewers. In 1992, right after he's hired, the team wins 92 games, finishing second to the Blue Jays in the AL East. Phil kept his scrappy attitude as a player into management and we we love some fighting managers garner got into it with the white Sox terry boom boom bevington in 1995 and there's a pretty good video of that brawl phil ends up with his his shirt pulled and stretched and and you get some heated manager shouting garner stays in milwaukee until 99 his brewers never really finish over 500 Again, after that point. I'll admit that because he was there for such a long time, I assumed that he was a former Brewer player. Maybe it's just because he's known for having a mustache. I couldn't quite figure out why they kept him around for seven years, finishing under 500 most of the time. He's fired in August 99, goes to Detroit, has two losing seasons in Detroit, and was fired in his third year. 2004, he takes over midseason from Jimmy Williams in Houston. And 
the Astros go on a tear. They go 48-26 and to close out the season, earn the wildcard spot, and lose in the NLCS in seven games to the Cardinals in a heartbreaker for them. But then in 2005, again, taking the wildcard spot, Garner takes the Astros all the way to the World Series. I have very fond memories of this 2005 World Series because the White Sox swept the Astros. Sorry, Houston. Sorry, Phil Garner. (laughs) In 2006, the Astros fall around 500 and Garner's fired in 2007 when the team is underperforming well into August. After getting fired in Houston, Garner spent some time away from baseball. He was in the oil and gas business. He was part of a hunting and fishing booking business in Louisiana. For a short time, he was a special assistant in the A's organization. Not quite sure what he's doing now. I think that he has some property in Tennessee he's talked about. And recently, his number was retired by the University of Tennessee. A bronze bust was placed at Bearden High School, which is an outstanding picture of him with the Pirates. It probably took a lot of work to get that mustache definition in bronze. The Forge probably needed an upgrade to be able to handle this mustache in the bronze. I wonder if it was made out of scrap bronze. (laughs) But Garner's name came up recently in the news in light of the Astros cheating scandal. He was asked about Mike Fires, who is the whistleblower after he left the Astros. Garner said, I think that he's been viewed as a rat, which... Interesting that Bob Ojeda used that same talk about Mm -hmm. Phil Garner. If it was a big deal for you, why didn't you bring it up when you were with the Astros? Why didn't you step up and stop it? You're going to wait until you're on another team. You're going to enjoy the fruits of any success being had by the team. And then you go away and say, I don't like that anymore. And so I get it. Garner is an old school scrappy guy, but shifting the blame of a team-wide manager and player-influenced cheating scandal to the one guy who says that this was happening as soon as he steps away just kind of reinforces a code of silence around some negative aspects of baseball in the clubhouse. That said, it it's fitting with Phil Garner's old-school scrappy attitude. That kind of code of silence can really mask other things, and it would be nice for teams not to cheat and also... <laughs> For there to be some respect for people who call out behavior that's not sporting or, you know, to call out that behavior whenever they do it. And for fires, you know, what are you going to do if this goes all the way to the top of an organization? Are you going to say the general manager who is the guy in control of your paycheck and whether or not you have a job is involved in cheating? It's a difficult situation. Yes, it's an imbalance of power that can result in some bad behavior. So unfortunate. But all that aside, David, what do we think now after looking more into Phil Garner and his career? I like Phil Garner. I like this career. I like looking back at these pictures of Phil on the 1970s Pirates. There's just multiple times in my notes here where I just say, let's just talk about this picture. And it's Phil Garner and his mustache, Phil Garner and his wild, crazy hair and that 70s Pirates uniform. And it's impressive with the back of this card, how full it is. Maybe not overwhelming numbers. You know, maybe the most impressive numbers here is the the total number of triples. But there's a lot of stuff that's not on the card that made Phil Garner a guy who people wanted on their team. A guy that Chuck Tanner traded away Tony Armas, who would go on to lead the league in, in home runs, basically to get Phil Garner, a second baseman, a scrappy little guy, 
guy who's been described as tough or gritty, and Sal Bando said he was gutty. A guy who'd switch from third base to second base to take the kind of slides that guys were bringing in in the 1970s. There's pictures of him just leaping over guys coming in with what I would call red card tackles at second base. (laughs) And that takes grit. And a guy Phil's size who would go toe-to-toe with Dave Parker throwing insults back and forth, that's gutty. Scrap Iron is just a fantastic name for a Steel City player in the 1979 Pittsburgh team. As Stargell said, you can bend him and beat on him, but you can't break him. And Phil fit that name to a T. He played all over the field and was a valuable player well into his 30s. And I didn't know much about him other than excellent mustache, seemed like an okay coach. And now I think he's a very good, versatile, defensive player and a really great teammate. Very well said. A great story, a great mustache, a great member of that 79 World Series team. So thank you, David. Uh, Thank you very much to listener Charlie from Tennessee, and good luck with collecting all of those vols. And thank you to you at home. If you are wild as a mink but sweet as soda pop, we would love to hear from you on Twitter. We're at Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.